0: Good morning. Our sermon text this morning is from Matthew 19, through 12 Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together.
1: Father, what would it be like uh, on both sides of this pulpit this morning if we joined together and believed that all scripture is inspired by God and therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, that the people of God might be adequate, and complete, equipped for every good work. What would that be like, Father? We want it. And we want it to be true as well on both sides of this pulpit that we believe that whether in preaching or in hearing the word preached, we are in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That he is going to return and bring his kingdom in fullness. So whether we are in season or out of season this morning, Father, we pray that you would make us ready for him by your word. Bring healing and bring sanctifying grace, and bring salvation in Jesus' name. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Friends, this is, uh, this is now the, the second of what I uh, expect, I plan. Did you see the scare quotes around the word plan? Did you see that? Uh, will be four messages on the theme of marriage from these uh, verses in Matthew 19. And uh, I, want to, I want you to know why. I want you to know why I think it's a wise investment of our time as a congregation to linger on this theme and this passage, especially when such a high percentage of our community is not presently married. This is a very interesting passage, because in this passage, what what gets described in this passage is Jesus having an encounter with two groups of people that I will call the marriage changers, okay? And it's not hard to identify the first group of marriage changers. The first group of marriage changers is the Pharisees, and they come up to him with a question about divorce that comes out of a low view of marriage. It's an easy-come, easy-go view of marriage, it's not hard to see that group of marriage changers. The second is, is harder to see but more urgent for us to see, and that second group is Jesus' own disciples. And both of these groups, which is what I find so fascinating, is that both of these groups, which have a, each have a stated commitment to the Bible, neither one of them, according to Jesus, has a sufficiently biblically high view of marriage. Jesus' own disciples have a low view of marriage. Their response in verse 10 is not adequate for Jesus, because they say, when they hear what Jesus has to say about marriage, they say, well, wait a second. If that's the case, then marriage must... It's too dangerous for us. We can't do this. That's a chicken. Both the Pharisees and the disciples are chickens. The Pharisees don't hang in there. They're cowards. And the disciples don't trust God either. And friends... That's very shocking, and it's very sobering. How in the world are are we as Christians, uh, we as the Church of Jesus Christ, in our culture, where uh, where from every angle, whether it's the Grammy Awards, or I'm sure there'll be something tonight during the halftime show, where the marriage changers are on the march. How are we going to respond to that? And what happens if the marriage changers are on the march inside the church? Have you faced that? Unless we are radically steeped in God's vision for marriage and in uh, the Bible's vision for marriage, we're not going to be equipped to deal with the marriage changers either on the outside of the church or the inside of the church. And this is really why Jesus is so jealous for marriage, my friends. See, I'm, I'm not interested in pursuing an agenda with you that is cultural or that is political or constitutional. The definition, the meaning of marriage is all those things. It is a social issue with massive implications. But you know what? It is not the issue Uh, the, the, The political ramifications of marriage's definition, the constitutional ramifications, all those ramifications, those are important aspects of this question, but they are not the ultimate measure of its importance because the ultimate measure of marriage's meaning is the meaning of the gospel, my friends. From page one of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, God makes it very clear in the Scriptures, God, well, I'm losing buttons, God makes it very clear in the Scriptures that the whole of history is about a marriage. The whole of history, friends. And if all of history, if the big story of history, the capital S story of history is a capital M marriage, then guess what? That means that little m marriage, every single one of them is meant to point us to that big M marriage. And that means that every marriage is much bigger than meets the naked eye in terms of its significance. And that also means that you cannot fiddle with the story of the little M marriage without introducing a distortion about the big M marriage that all of history is about. That is why Jesus is so jealous for marriage. That is the vision that the church of Jesus Christ needs to recover in our day. This is a gospel issue. So whether you are married or unmarried right now, it doesn't matter. What matters is the gospel Jesus tells us through his apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, remember, that this mystery, the one flesh union between a husband and wife is profound. And I am saying, this is the the Christ appointed, Christ inspired apostle saying, I am saying, which means that Jesus is saying, that it refers to Christ and the church. And what God has put together, marriage and the gospel, we are not at liberty to separate. So this morning what I want to do as we get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to think about two questions about marriage. I want to think about the design of marriage, God's design for marriage, and the God-appointed destiny for marriage. So let's think first about the design of marriage. And by design, I mean God's design, not our design's. Right? And that necessarily requires us to think about a definition of marriage, which Jesus very carefully lays out for us in verses 4 through 6. Now, unless I indicate otherwise, friends, this morning, my comments about marriage are going to be about a Christian marriage in which both husband and wife are Christians. I know that doesn't describe all the marriages uh, that are represented in this room. I, can't, I know it's hard to believe when you hear me say this, but I actually can't say everything. I want to, but I can't. So I've got to confine, I've got to start with that image, and we can talk about other implications uh, outside of of worship. But let me give you a working definition of a Christian marriage. You know, so so often, uh, try this in life, try to define the things that are most familiar to you. It's not as easy as it looks. So I'm going to give you a working definition of a Christian marriage here, and I'm sure you guys are going to go home. You're going to improve it this afternoon. So let, let me just put it on the table, okay? What's a Christian marriage? A Christian marriage is the God-given, life-long union of one man and one woman who are justified sinners. A Christian marriage is the God-given, lifelong long union of one man and one woman who are justified sinners. That union is created and sustained by God for his glory through the couple's joy in telling and displaying the truth about Jesus Christ within the marriage to one another and from the marriage to the world. So the marriage, by definition, is about something way bigger than itself. Friends, a Christian marriage is a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. And I want to think with you about two two aspects of how miraculous it is this morning. When we think about God's design, a Christian marriage is, is marked by miraculous math, and it's marked by a miraculous membership. So let's think first about the miraculous math Of Christian marriage. It's a God given union. And that's a very remarkable union that Jesus is describing. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What is the nature of that union? It's remarkable. Last week we saw how Jesus narrates a marriage in verses 4 through 6. He's narrating a marriage, the story of a marriage, on two levels. At one level, there's the human level, what we tend to focus on, which is a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, which, which must happen in marriage. Okay. In other words, the, the picture from Genesis 2 is that the, that the husband gives himself to his bride. But Jesus is very clear that there's another story beneath that story. doesn't nullify that story. In fact, it's the foundation of that, of that surface-level story. And it is this, that, 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 enjo- that, that when, the, when the man and the woman are, join themselves to one another, what's really happening is that it is God who is giving them to each other that the real giver of marriage, the real ultimate giver of this union is God. He makes the union. And friends, the implications of that are enormous, because what it means is that what God gives, we can never take away. We must not ever think ourselves entitled to treat our marriages as our decision that we can either enter into on our terms or exit from and divorce on our terms or remarry on our terms. Unless God is giving you to somebody, you are not allowed to marry that person. Our last message on marriage is going to be about being equally yoked, divorce, and remarriage at the end of February. Because it's huge. No one is free to marry whomever they want. No one is free to divorce whomever they want, whenever they want. And no one is free, according to Jesus, to get remarried whenever or to whomever you want. He's the king. We need to think about that. But this morning, let's go deeper now into this miraculous math. There's two aspects of, of the math in marriage that are just totally stunning. First, the two are three. I know it's going to sound like I'm crazy, but hang in there with me. The two are three, and secondly, the two are one. The t- first, the two are three. What do I mean by that? Well, in this union that God is making in giving the husband and the wife to one another, the Lord doesn't leave. He doesn't just join them together and then leave the marriage. Oh, that's so important. He isn't just, he's not a matchmaker. He's also the matchkeeper. The husband and wife, no husband and wife are alone in their marriage. Marriage is not merely a two-party relationship. Turn with me to Malachi chapter 2, or as we call it in the Francis household, Malachi. Okay? You just have to go one book to the left in the Old Testament. It's really easy. Malachi chapter 2. Now, Malachi... Uh, chapter 2, the Lord through the prophet is engaging with a bunch of complaints that the community of God's people have against him. Now notice, and he responds. Now they're, they're complaining in the beginning of verse 13. That, well, you, I'll just read it and you can, you can follow along. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, uh, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, God's not, not treating them favorably. This is very much like what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3 7, when, he t- when, when Peter warns husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, and to grant them honor as a fellow of the grace of life so that your prayers wouldn't be hindered. It's amazing. So why doesn't God grant them favor? Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? And here's the answer. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. The Lord was at the altar with the two of you. There when you took your vows, when you made your vows, he was right there. To whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now notice, Did he not make them one, thinking of Genesis Genesis 2.24? Did he not make them one? He was the matchmaker. And now notice this. With a portion of the spirit, that means his spirit, in their union. Now that's absolutely amazing. Because what Malachi is saying, my friends, is that God is fully invested in the marriage of his people. He put his spirit into your marriage. My friends, if you are are in a Christian marriage, God has personally invested himself in your marriage, and he is all in from the beginning, not because you guys are the model couple, hardy, har, har, but because he is the model God, because marriage is impossible for men. And it's only possible with God. God's Spirit is there. Think of it. He's all in the great I Am in all of His endless abundance, in all of His wisdom, in all of His provision. It doesn't matter what you go through. It doesn't matter what eventuality you're going to encounter in your marriage. You will never be in an eventuality in which the sufficiency of the great I Am will not be sufficient enough for you. And that means that every divorce in which God is blamed is a lie. It will never be God who has failed. He will never fail in his faithfulness. Our faith may fail. But his faithfulness will never fail. Now why would God go to such lengths? Why would he put his spirit into the marriages of his people? There's one answer and one answer alone, friends. It's Ephesians 5.32. This mystery is profound. It has been a mystery since Genesis 2. Why is marriage so very important to the Lord? Why is he so invested? Why is he willing to pour himself into that covenant? Because the heart of this mystery is about Christ and his church. The ultimate issue is at issue in every marriage. The math of a Christian marriage is absolutely miraculous. The two are three. And that should give us great seriousness in our marriages that we're always in the presence of God. It is so easy to lose sight of this in the rhythms of daily life together, but your Christian marriage is an absolute miracle, and my single friends, if you're thinking about getting married, your vision for marriage just needs to explode like a supernova, because it's this big. You might think that it's just you and your spouse sitting there at the table, but it's not. God's never going to leave you to yourselves. That means that your marriage exists with God as the witness so that the truth about Jesus Christ will be told and displayed and enjoyed and rejoiced over within the marriage between the spouses. Because it's the Spirit's ministry to bring glory to Jesus by declaring what belongs to him. Amazing how important marriage is. But then on top of that, the math is also miraculous because the two, husband and wife, are one. Now notice, when Jesus describes marriage, he describes it as having one representative from each sex, one male, one female. It's amazing that we even need to have this discussion, right? Amazing. If you don't believe Romans 1 now, you should. We've got to have this discussion. Marriage is not, notice the way Jesus describes it. This is so important because here's how our culture has at least started to describe marriage marriage is just a, a, a relationship between two consenting parties, although even that's eroding now. Right? Just between two consenting parties. Jesus says, uh 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 uh. uh. One male, one female. One representative from each sex. This has been God's exclusive model for marriage from the very beginning. So as both a matter of theology and a matter of biology, right, the same-sex marriage, gay marriage, that's an oxymoron. And it's not loving to the world to say anything other than that. We need to speak the truth about that. That's an oxymoron. One One flesh. One flesh, that is an amazing statement. God's purpose in joining a husband and wife together is a relationship in which there is full identification between two people, one male, one female, both together imaging God. This is very dignified. And one flesh, uh, that idea of one flesh, just think about this for a second. Think about the implications of that. What does that mean? Well, this is about uh, the exclusivity of the relationship. You you know, it's one flesh. And this is about so much more than the physical dimension of marriage. The physical dimension of marriage is a picture of this exclusive uniqueness that is supposed to exist by God's design between a husband and wife. There There is not supposed to be any other relationship in a couple's world that is like their marriage. One flesh. It's indivisible. It's amazing. Totally amazing. It's exclusive. It, this is also a statement about the extent of the union, it extends to all areas of life. In God's design for marriage, according to Jesus, A husband or or one, one spouse gives all of him or herself to the other spouse and receives all of the other spouse. And there are no boundaries, right? This is a statement about no independence. There are not little areas. A marriage is not supposed to be like Yugoslavia, okay? You are one united country all areas of your life. This is one flesh in all areas. There's supposed to be nothing about my spouse that she withholds from me. There is nothing about me that I withhold from my spouse. There is nothing about my spouse that when I take those vows that I am not willing to receive as God's gift to me, as God's sacred trust to me. Of course you have no idea who you're marrying. You know that, right? You You're standing on a beach and you have tunnel vision and you hold up one grain of sand and your spouse is that whole limitless strand of beach with all these grains of sand and maybe you have three or four grains in your hand and you say, these are so beautiful. And they are. And so are the other grains. But you really don't know God does, though, and he's brought you together. And this one flesh union is about duration as well. It's about all seasons of life, all eventualities of life, all the ups and downs. The union, the covenant between a husband and wife is supposed to encompass not just every area of life, but every season and every eventuality of life. That is God's design. It does not always work out that way, does it? But that's not a flaw in God's design. That is supposed to be how it works out. Now, I want you to think about how amazing this math is, friends. One man and one woman. The two become one. Now, have you ever stopped to think... This, by the way, is the third most complex equation in the universe. Third, number one is the Trinity, how three persons can be one God. That's a, that is the most complex equation in the universe. This is the third most complex equation in the universe. And we're going to finish this morning by thinking about the second most complex equation in the universe. But let's think about the third. A man and a woman. Now, I know this may be a late-breaking update for some of you, but men and women are very different. It's actually the first thing I always say in marriage counseling. I look at, the, I look at, the, I look at the, the male fiance, the guy, and I say, I have one sentence for you and I can fit almost everything I'm gonna have to tell you over our future meetings under this one sentence. Here's the topic sentence for everything I'm gonna say to you. Women are different. And then I look at the woman and I repeat the same thing and I say, men are different. This is an amazing union. We joke about this stuff, the differences between men and women, and some of it is humorous, but it's a very serious thing. I mean, men, you don't know it. You walk into the kitchen. There's a piece of paper on the counter. You see the piece of paper. Now, it would never occur to you when you see the piece of paper, you're just thinking about the piece of paper. It would never occur to you that that paper is somehow connected to a conversation you had in 1994 But when your wife walks into the kitchen and she sees the piece of paper, you know what she thinks of first? The conversation in 1994. In her mind, there is a straight line between that piece of paper and that conversation, which you've long forgotten. Do you know why that is? Because women image God. For a woman, it is very often the case that everything relates to everything else. And I say that as a compliment. I say that as a compliment. I honor my sisters. Do you know why that's a compliment? Because everything is related to everything else in the mind of God. And you image God to us. Now, man, we compartmentalize. We like to fix things. And women often make fun of men, and we receive it uh, as, as, you know, humorous banter. Don't I don't want you to fix something. I want you to listen. Well, women, you need to let the men fix things sometimes. You know why? Because God doesn't just listen; He fixes things. That's what He does. So when God brings a man and a woman together in marriage, this is an amazing math. It is a miraculous math. This is a math unlike any other at the human level. A man and a woman brought together with all their differences, with all the potentials for disunity. And somehow, in God's design, he brings these image bearers of his together and sustains them in a covenant. This, friends, this is exactly why I think the church needs to, Christians need to step it up rhetorically and logically. You know, when our culture is, is putting forth same-sex marriage as, I'm sweating so much, I'm just going to keep my glasses off, Okay. when our our culture keeps putting forward same-sex marriage as the brave new world, friends, we need to call their bluff. Same-sex marriage isn't brave. It's cowardly. It is so easy. It's too conservative. You never have to leave home in same-sex marriage. You do not have to incur the same risks that you incur in God's design for marriage. You never have to enter an undiscovered country. You never have to learn a completely new culture. You never have to learn a new language. You never have to leave your comfort zone in same sex marriage, whereas what God calls us to in His design is wild and risky. And I mean it when I say it, that the vision of marriage in same-sex marriage is too easy. It's like T-ball compared to the major leagues. And that's not rhetorical for me. It is scary. It is beyond your control. It is impossible for man to do this only possible with God. Same-sex marriage is way too within reach. It's way too possible for men and women because you only have to be what you yourself are. You don't have to step into another role. You don't need a cross for same-sex marriage. You don't need a gospel. You don't need God, who is the most different of all, coming and crossing a divide and making himself one with sinners. You don't need that for same-sex marriage, but that is what the gospel gives you. Secondly, the miraculous membership of a Christian marriage. A Christian marriage is made up of justified sinners, my friends. (laughs) That is an amazing thing. Uh, Two Christians brought together... A Christian is an amazing being. I wonder if we've, we've remembered that. A Christian is somebody who sinned against God, who has, who has deserved the wrath of God, who has been forgiven by God, reconciled to God, declared righteous by God, all on the basis of the work of the Son of God. To be a Christian is to be absolutely a miracle. And then God puts two of you in one marriage. What a wonder that is. Because you're both justified already in his sight and you're both still sinners. That's a complex organism. I mean, think about it. If God has brought you together in marriage, that means that in the awesome design of God, when he joined you to your Christian spouse, he was appointing each of you to be the primary minister of the gospel of his son in the other's life. That means that outside of the Trinity, No one in the universe, in the judgment of God, no one in the entire universe is better suited to be the front-line primary minister of his son's gospel in your spouse's life than you. And similarly, that means that no one in all the universe in the judgment of God is better suited to be the primary minister of the gospel of his son to you than your spouse. Now you see, this is just another aspect in which when you and I pay attention to what the Bible actually says about people, here's what always happens. Dignity rises. This is true about marriage. It's true about every other area. The things that God says about men and women and children are infinitely higher than anything that men or women or children ever say about themselves. You're both sinners. Let's take that prong. You're both sinners. You're serial sinners, like we thought about last week, right? And if you're both, here you are in this union, and you're still both sinners. You're forgiven. You're justified, declared righteous righteous before God, but you still have indwelling sin in you. And friends, that ought to do a couple of things. It ought to It ought to adjust your expectations, and it ought to cause humility and compassion to grow. On the matter of expectations, think about it. If you are both still sinners, that means, guess what? That you are are both going to still be needing the gospel. You're not going to outgrow your need for the gospel in the marriage. And, And guess what? Your spouse is not going to out, despite what you want to believe in your darker moments, your spouse is never going to outpace you in your need for the gospel. You need the gospel together. This means your marriage isn't going to be messianic. It's never going to be your rescue. Your spouse is not going to be your deliverer. All your spouse can do, all your marriage can be, is to point you to the rescue. But this also ought to generate a fair amount of humility about yourself. You're a doer of sin still. And compassion for your spouse. Guess what? Not only has your, not only is your spouse a doer of sin, and you are too. So you guys are leveled there. But you know what? You know what? Being a sinner also means it means that in living in a world that's full of sin, you've had sin done against you. You're a victim of sin. You're not just a perpetrator of sin. There are limps that each of you carry into the marriage. You're going to be acutely aware of your spouse's limps. And what you are not supposed to do in marriage is go and kick them in the leg that they limp on. You're supposed to be compassionate because you yourself have limps, my friend. But isn't that what so often happens in marital conflict? You zero in like a heat-seeking missile on your spouse's weak point. That is so un-Jesus-like. You know what God did with our weak point? He poured his entire heart into it. You cannot do marriage unless what God has done is the central song you keep singing. And you're both justified. You see, that's the thing. You're not just sinners, you're justified. In God's estimation, you're forgiven. You're pardoned. You're acquitted, fully acquitted. You're innocent in the eyes of God. And not only that, you have been, if you're in Christ, you've been declared righteous by God. The weightiest opinion in the entire universe is infinitely, irrevocably, for you, and for your spouse. You need to take yourself more seriously. And you certainly need to take your spouse more seriously. I mean, you're walking around, you're living with somebody whom God has passed His judgment over and declared righteous in Jesus Christ. You're living with somebody who is no ordinary being. They are perfectly entitled to approach the throne of the thrice holy God. They are perfectly entitled and qualified to be there without being consumed and to receive a reward from God. You need to weigh your spouse heavy, my friend. And and if you remember what God's verdict is over you, you're going to be much more empowered to honor your spouse, to honor them as a fellow heir of the grace of life, to weigh them heavy, not to dismiss them. Your marriage should produce more of your spouse than there would be without your spouse, without you. You need to be adding to your spouse dignity, not taking it away, which we so often do. Finally, oh, and by the way, do I need to talk about forgiveness again? If God has forgiven your spouse, when you don't forgive your spouse, you know what you're doing? You're saying God is the small claims court and you're the Supreme Court. It's not going to work out well for you. Because that's not reality. What's the destiny of marriage? What's the whole point? I mean, where is this heading? Why does God design it this way? Friends, even the best Christian marriage, I've been talking about Christian marriage this morning, but let's remember where I began last week. Even the best Christian marriage is just a caterpillar. It is just a caterpillar. And it's pointing to the one butterfly Just like every other caterpillar, the one butterfly, which is the marriage of Christ with his church. And friends, we have to remember that. The third most uh, complex equation in the universe, which is the union, the one flesh union between a husband and wife, You you know what the meaning of that is? The meaning of that third most complex equation is to point us toward and to prepare us for the second most complex equation in the universe, which is the marriage of Jesus Christ and his bride. The church. That is a marriage unlike any other. That's what God has been preparing for his people. That's why Jesus came. I mean, think just, just think with me about this marriage between Jesus Christ and his people. Just think with me. Has there ever been a more unlikely pairing than between the Son of God, holy and creatures who are sinful. Have you ever thought about that? you ever thought about a marriage that looks on paper like it has the lowest prospects of success imaginable? I mean, we come from the wrong side of the tracks in this universe. We are rebels, right? And never, and yet never, never has there been a bridegroom like Jesus Christ. Never has there been a bridegroom like him. There has never been a a marriage with a membership more miraculous than the marriage between Jesus Christ and his people. He's a bridegroom. No no one's a bridegroom like him. He he left the greatest of all fathers. And he crossed the greatest of all divides. And he incurred the, the highest of prices. And he cleaved tightly, more tightly to his bride, more closely to his bride than any other bridegroom. He left a greater father, crossed a greater divide, cleaved more closely to his bride than anyone else, came for her when all she had to give him, friends, all we had to give him, was a dowry full of the wrath of God and a cross. And yet he came He came for us. And that's what God is pointing us toward, my friends. You know what John Owen says in the reflection quote is so true. Speaking of Jesus, he is glad in us without sorrow, he has no regrets. And every day while we live is his wedding day. You know what that means? That means today is his wedding day, friends. It's still his wedding day, and he doesn't have an ounce of regret. He crossed that distance. He came for you. He bled for you to bring you to himself. He took the dowry, the only dowry you and I had, which was not riches that we could give him, but our poverty, and he took our poverty in his body on the cross that he might enrich us from it. Friends, it's good to remember when we look at that table that this is an appetizer for a much greater banquet that Jesus has prepared for us and that he came to purchase for us and that he's going to come again to bring us into. And may we be mindful of all that he has done for us today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the riches of your grace that have called us into such an amazing marriage. And would you grant that your faithfulness to us would grip our hearts with a freshness and a sweetness today, that you would indeed ravish us with your gospel. We pray in your name, amen.